Is there a vacuum cleaner in the background? What is that? Hey, and welcome to Museo Punks, our first one for 2014. Happy New Year, Jeff. Happy New Year to you, Suze. How how were your holidays? Things were pretty good. In case you haven't come across us before, my name is Suze Cairns and I'm coming at you from Newcastle, Australia. And I am sitting here looking via the internet at my wonderful co-host, Jeff Insko, who is sitting over in the cold half of the world over in Pittsburgh. That's right. How are you doing, Pennsylvania. Uh, doing, doing really well. Um, the new year is off and running. Uh, had a good, a good uh, holiday break with the family, though. Um, I'm, I hope you did as well. I, I certainly did, although I've been doing a lot of working and a lot of writing. I've, I've been using what everyone else was calling holiday time as my time to just sit and work, and I'm feeling pretty good about that fact. You guys good, are busy good. over there? Very busy, yeah. We, uh, you know, we're in full, full, full force running on some uh, exhibitions that are opening later this year and some, some interesting web projects that, uh, that, that we'll be able to talk about here in, in the next couple months. But, um, yeah, things are, uh, I thought this was kind of going to be in a slow ease into 2014 and, and, uh, I could take my time with some things, but it's, uh, shaping up to be a, a, a pretty busy year already, uh, which is good, you know? Yeah, technology, I think that sounds technology really good. does not slow down for you. You know, you have to. <laughs> no, I think that's one of the things that I've learned from being in this space for the last couple of years is technology doesn't slow down for any of us. If, if anything, it sort of seems to constantly be bringing new challenges. So, uh, yeah, it's unforgiving, but exciting at the same time. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, you're someone that's interested in things like the slow tech mo- movement, though, aren't you? Definitely. Personally, I especially, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, coming, you know, towards the end of 2013, you know, during the holidays, it's a time of reflection for a lot of people. Um, And this past year, I I really thought about slowing down personally on the Internet, you know, Um, um, only speaking when when I could provide something of value um, to to connections online and really considering my personal uses of platforms like Twitter and Instagram and all of that stuff. So I, 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 I'm happy with kind of where I am now, uh, with that, but yeah. Can I ask you, can I pick pick into that though? You sort of talk about only things of value. How can you know what's going to be valuable to someone? Uh, well, you know, that's, that's a good question. I, I don't, I don't think people really want to know what I'm having for breakfast or uh, I don't think that um, they, they really want to see all these wonderful, cute pictures of my kids that I'm taking constantly uh, with my phone. Um, <laughs> but maybe they do want to they do want to um, see uh, know of uh, an interesting, thought provoking link that somebody an article somebody wrote that relates to. Um, the stuff that I'm personally into museums and technology and so right I think a lot about my use as well and definitely the big stuff is easy the stuff like a link to another article no worries I can I know to link that it's the smaller stuff that becomes a little bit harder to work out well Mm -hmm. is this interesting and does that make a better connection with someone and I think 
that's one of the things that I'm not sure about because actually sometimes it's the little details of someone's life that actually can make you connect with them a little bit better. Yeah, definitely. And I, I don't, I, I, I think I might, that might've come out wrong. I think, um, one of the articles and I'll drop this in the, sh- in the show notes, um, that a really kind of, uh, was a catalyst to my thinking about this was, um, by Frank Chimiro. Um, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. it was called homesteading in 2014. And, and he basically, the, his article is that he's kind of doubling down on his personal website and, for 2014 and and creating uh you know kind of slowing down on these external platforms but being more thoughtful about what he posts to his site and almost making it like this kind of cluttered cottage of the internet so you may find um you know a a writing about technology but you could also find you know a, a wonderful picture of his children or something that's that's a little bit more thoughtful a little bit more meaningful and um and and slower. I really I mean I like the idea of 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 the internet becoming slower if it can. So the reason I thought of the the slow technology movement is I was just reading on the center of the future of museums blog. There's an article about they are every year they run an innovation program. And the Jane Addams Hull House Museum is one of the three museums that's enrolled in their innovation lab in the next round. And what they're working on is um, taking a slower approach to museum practices. Interesting. Slower, huh? sort of seeing how they can try and, yeah, try and slow down and be more deliberate in their museum practices. And that huh. they're using that as their form of innovation. And I think it's really interesting because I think we often associate innovation as being something that's, um, uh, you know, we, we associate it with these ideas of things like rapid pro- prototyping and those sort of very... Um, mm-hmm current ways of thinking, whereas their way of thinking of innovation is how do we slow down museum practice and be more deliberate about it, huh, that's which I interesting. think comes down to what you're interested in. Yeah. Yeah, Again, and, and, I, I will drop a link to this in the show notes. Cool. Yeah, because, you know, especially I know we're, I know you, we're going to talk about kind of R&D and, and that and that uh, topic uh, in a little bit, but um, you know, it, it almost that approach and this idea of slow tech and, and, and thoughtful usage of of technology goes in, in in stark contrast to this you know technology cycles and um, even the some of the ideas that that like what Michael Edson talks about with 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 speed and 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 aligning with the world around us in a way that's just getting faster and faster and faster um, that needs to happen but I you know there is certainly a place for this. I don't know a better way to say it other than thoughtful, other than like... like yeah, sort like, of reflective like kind of, and deliberate. and Yeah, deliberate. Yeah, that's th- a good those word. Those kinds of practices. Yeah, I mean, that's... they In the blog post, they sort of say, we hypothesize that a slower approach to museum practices could dramatically increase the museum's intrinsic value by producing more meaningful visitor experiences and communi- community partnerships and increased reflection and evaluation of museums' work, ultimately resulting in a more sustainable and effective institution. And I think mm-hmm. there is a really interesting idea of how you build in deliberateness and thoughtfulness and reflection into your work, particularly when people are so busy, like you're talking about coming back from the break and already you're so busy. So how you then build in time for reflection and ways to reflect as part of your practice. 
Yeah, definitely. And and I think that I think that's interesting because you can certainly do that. Like museums notoriously are are slow and kind of operate at glacial paces. But this but but kind of slowing down the interpretive aspects of what a museum does and and almost structuring it structuring those interactions in a way that happen on the visitor's terms rather than um the institution's terms could could be really interesting i think so yeah i think so as well i really look forward to seeing what comes out of these experiments so hopefully there will be a report back once they've finished taking this sort of experimental approach i think they've got a year to do it um but i think it's a really good idea maybe uh, january 2015 yeah we'll talk to them about it yeah absolutely now speaking of experimentation we are talking to someone who is um, the Director of Research and Development at MoMA. We're talking to Paola Antonelli, who's Senior Curator of Architecture and Design, as well as Director of the New Research and Development side of things at MoMA, which does bring us into this idea of innovation and research and museum development. It, it seems to be quite a trend at the moment for museums to be starting things like um, innovation labs, um, yep arts, incubation spaces, things like that. What do you think is driving this trend? Um, you know, I, it's hard for me to tell exactly what's driving it, but, I, you know, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on this too, Suze. Um, I think it has a lot to do with uh, with kind of aligning museum practices with this this kind of increased cycle of technology and, and development and rapid prototyping and experimentation um, and creating physical spaces for those things to happen at museums. You know, you look at what IMA does with their lab. You look at, um, you know, Julia Kagansky's new initiative um, with the new museum in New York. You look at what, what Paola does. And they all, the, the common thread is that is that there's this kind of experimental aspect running through through it all. And Definitely. Yeah, and I think also trying to find funding models to enable that to happen because I think a lot of these experiments are tied to how can you get funding and how can you get support for some of the edgier and more experimental Mm -hmm. things. So I think these lab setups are definitely sort of trying to find ways that um, institutions can have room to do the things on the side that might help develop the sector and help develop practice as well. Yeah, exactly. So um, full disclosure, um, uh, Suze, you had a chance meeting with with Paula uh, down under, right? So how did did that come about? Uh, She was down here to talk at a program called UTS Speaks, which was at the University of Technology, Sydney. And because it's a small world and I happen to have uh, someone who could put me in contact with her, I was able to have a half an hour to talk to Paula. And it was fantastic, except uh, we were put into a room that had a very, very, very loud air conditioner. So although I think the content of this interview is great, I will admit that the sound quality is maybe not to our usual, um, I'd like to say our usual standard, but certainly what we're usually hoping for. Yeah, we'll just change it up a little bit and, and provide a kind of authentic experience as if, you know, someone w- were in that space with you overhearing your conversation. I think it's cool. I think the content is amazing. So let's uh, let's yeah. get into it. Yeah. 
Senior Curator of Architecture and Design and the Director of Research and Development at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Antonelli's work investigates design's influence on everyday experience, often including overlooked objects and practices, and combining design, architecture, art, science, and technology. In addition to her role as Senior Curator of Architecture and Design at MoMA, Paola was recently appointed Director of a new Research and Development Initiative in 2012. She lectures frequently at high-level global conferences and coordinates cultural discussions at the World Economic Forum in Davos. A true interdisciplinary, energetic and generous cultural thinker, Paolo was recently rated as one of the top 100 most influential people in the world of art by Art Review. Paolo, welcome to Museo Punks. I like the, the energetic part because I so don't have any energy. I'm so dead lagged. I like that energetic, no, no, not today. <laughs> I mean, we're sitting here in Sydney, which yes, is obviously a bit of a, a jump for you. Why are you in Sydney? I'm in Sydney because of Hal Kobayashi, who is a really great friend. He has a super long title, so sometimes I lose myself. But um, he's a very big innovator. That's why sometimes it's also hard to remember his title. He's trying to create this new mutant kind of school that is about the creative industry. And I'm here to support um, uh, some, uh, his initiative and to speak at his event tonight. So what are you talking about tonight? I'm talking about the new frontiers of design. I think uh, it's very important to let people know, even, even the converted, you know, sometimes you need to preach also to the converted, uh, that design has become so multifaceted, but that it has, at the end, always the same core. You know? So I'm talking about all forms of design. Tonight you'll see examples of bio-design, interaction design, product design, architecture. But they are all about design being political, critical, activist. So I'll show how certain sentiments that are necessary for a good design practice are alive throughout the different branches of design. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in terms of your acquisitions practice recently and its relationship mm -hmm. to design because moma has been acquiring under your direction some quite interesting things like the app symbol mm -hmm. and like the video games. With the at symbol, how does that process go about? How do you how do you acquire a symbol? Well, it's interesting because we still use the word the word acquisition because it's museum lingo. But in a way, it doesn't work for something like the at sign because acquiring means buying and purchasing and owning. Right. Instead, the at sign is the opposite. It's it's in the public domain. It belongs to everybody. Um, so acquisition is a wrong word, but it's the one that we use normally. But in truth, the way it works is this. I believe that as curators, it is our job to present to our public an educational checklist of wonderful artifacts in our particular area of specialty that support the idea that you know art is fundamental to the healthy development of a society. So in the case of design, that implies in many cases artifacts that you can own, you can buy and own and preserve, because it's the job of a museum also to preserve. But in some cases, the objects cannot be had. Right. Maybe they are too free, you know, or they're too huge. I think you need to limit yourself. This kind of virtual acquisitions can happen only when there's a really good reason that has to do with physics. It cannot be a reason of money. You cannot start putting dips, uh, dip signs on things that cost too much money. That's not fair. But like, the example of the at sign is uh, something that cannot be had because it belongs in the world. It's almost how I like to say to people that what we did is there's a butterfly that flies and there's a shadow it casts on the wall. And what we put in the collection is the shadow on the wall, right? So we hmm. just simply put the at sign on the wall of the museum and we have it in the collection management system. 
But when people call us and ask us for a special image, copyright, etc., we just tell them, look, just press the button on your keyboard, and if you can, choose American Typewriter as a font, because it's the closest to the one used in 1971 by okay. Ray Tomlinson, who's the engineer that was in inventing the email, designing the email system. And, you know, that's it. You go for it. Yeah, I'm really interested in this. In our last episode of Museo Punks, we spoke to Seb Chan and Aaron Cope uh -huh. from Cooper Hewitt about their acquisition of Planetary, and mm -hmm. we were talking a lot about these sort of living objects, yeah. and in a similar way, this is what we're talking about here. Yeah, um, absolutely, and we started acquiring interaction design in 2006. Our first acquisition was the reactive books by John Maida. And uh, after that, we've been acquiring quite a, quite a few live objects, as you call them. It's an absolutely perfect definition. Uh, we started out with digital fonts. So we acquired 23 of them, ranging from Verdana to instead the emigre fonts, you know, some more uh, esoteric ones, but also some really wide-ranging ones. Um, and then, of course, we have acquired the video games, the at sign. Um, two weeks ago, we just acquired the Google, the pin, the pin from the Google Maps. So you know, a new wheelchair accessibility sign that instead of being the static wheelchair, it's a guy that's almost a Paralympics athlete. So it's, it's really interesting. I'm fascinated. I think that design is about live objects these days, and we cannot stop just because there are traditions that are not set for that. That's why one of the most interesting aspects of these acquisitions is the one that, that the public doesn't see, the one that is about conservation, that is right. about, about acquisition policy. And I'm proud to say that our digital conservators at MoMA are kind of writing the policy and the protocols for this kind of acquisitions. So many other museums look to them for, uh, and they're working, of course, with uh, many other scholars at NYU, other museums. But for instance, what we do is we try to acquire the code. You know, also for video games, it's not always possible, but we try. Yes. And then we are super redundant, you know, in the sense that for a video game, for instance, you try to get the code. And then you interview the coder, because code is language, and there are turns of phrase, and there are inflections that mean something. And as a conservator, if you want to preserve this code, you might, you might want to know all the different um, aspects of it. So code, interview. Then we film people using, for instance, for arcade games, the original video game. And yeah. we're looking at the behavior and also the sound. I mean, it's really interesting. You know? And then we try to get also emulations when available. So we're super renowned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's quite interesting that I'm, I'm seeing a lot of these experimental type practices all coming from a design background. I mean, obviously, Cooper Hewitt is a design museum. You're coming from a design perspective as well. Do you think there's something unique about the current zeitgeist, I suppose, that encourages design to tackle these particular problems in ways that other parts of the museum might not have to? Well, um, design is about life, and uh, even at the beginning of the Museum of Modern Art, when it was founded in 1929, it was clear to the founding director, it was Alfred Barr, he was saying that design was the opportunity for everybody to have art in their lives. So design is about life. Whether you consider it art or not, it doesn't matter. Design is about life, and life evolves. And design curators, contemporary design curators, have to keep up with it. Yeah. So, so much of our life is in the digital world these days, and it's been that way for two decades or more, that it would be crazy if we didn't deal with it, right? So I like the fact, you know, for instance, right now, as I mentioned to you, there are all these digital conservators at MoMA. You know, it was Glenn Wharton at first, and now he left to go to NYU, but there's Ben Finoradin and Peter Oleksik. And 
really, really great conservators. And um, they are enthusiastically spearheading and leading the museum into the future. You know, it's a wonderful collaboration that I have with them because I, I am not hindered by technical difficulties. I mean, we need to convince the whole museum, but they are creating a whole digital repository. I mean, it's amazing what they're doing. And also now, Kate Walker came from Tate Modern a few months ago, and she also is part of the team, and she's adding her expertise. So I have to say, um, the digital backbone uh, of the curatorial practice at MoMA is super strong from the viewpoint of conservation, as I mentioned, and also from the viyupoint of publication and dissemination with Allegra Burnett and Shannon Darrow. So uh, we are definitely um, doing what we're supposed to do without remaining behind. Yeah, and I think this is quite interesting because one of the things I'd like to talk to you about is your sort of new position as Director of Research and Development at MoMA. And it's quite interesting to me that that's coming from a curatorial background because often no. I see these sort of labs coming from tech positions. Or development, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know, I'm very proud of that. Thank you for picking up on it. It's an idea that I had in 2008 during the financial crisis oh. because, you know, one of the biggest issues that we have as cultural agents, you know, you, me, people in academia, is that um, very often the cultural sector is not considered necessary to the economic development of the society, right? So right. the industrial sector, absolutely. Financial sector, absolutely. Cultural sector, oh, let's cut the budget, who cares? So 2008 was a glaring demonstration of the fact that the financial sector does not necessarily contribute to the progress of a society, but quite the opposite. So I was thinking, okay, this is our opportunity. We can yes. finally show our true colors, show how important culture is. It might be a slower kind of progress, but it's more humane, dependable, long-term sustainable, and so on and so forth. So it was um, an opportunity that I saw, and uh, I spoke about it with the director of the museum, but at that time it was impossible because we were all taking pay cuts not to fire people. You know, yeah. MoMA was quite exemplary that way because uh, we, we managed to save all jobs. Um, so it was not a possibility. So I waited and then it happened um, a year and a half ago. So at the beginning of 2012. But the fact that the impetus came from a curator was in my opinion important because um, it was about bridging the different parts of the museum. And mm. I think that a curator would have an easier time doing that than anybody else, right? I mean, there's a lot of uh, um, uh, there's a lot of conversations that are happening across the museum at the moment more than in other museums. It's not so separate between curatorial and administrative. Right. But it's always been my role, because it's contemporary design, to bridge the two sides. And I felt that it would be natural and also as a way of communicating towards the outside world, it would almost guarantee that um, R&D would be about mission compliance for any kind of initiative yes. in the future. So it was really good, I thought, that way. So, I mean, I think that's quite interesting. When I when I do think about the sorts of projects you're talking about and, and allowing them to actually proving a need for mm -hmm. museums and cultural institutions to do this, I sort of wonder a little bit, what can we, what can cultural institutions bring to research and development that other organisations, other businesses, etc. can't? I mean, what sort of projects are you tackling mm -hmm. 
and and how can cultural institutions bring something different? It's interesting because you're talking about cultural institutions bringing to R&D, and instead I see R&D as giving to the cultural institutions. So I haven't thought about it that way. So to me, R&D is for the museum, and it's about, as I mentioned, this position of museums in society and making sure that people realize that museums like academia is the R&D, are the R&D of society, so it's about that. And then it's about um, making sure that museums are self-aware and that remain relevant also in the future, because without that kind of rediscussion of um, one's nature, there's no, um, there's no possibility to really stand the future, especially if you're a private museum. Um, but what I think, you know, to actually look at things from your perspective, so what can museum bring to R&D, I think it's really interesting. First of all, we're here, I'm here today to talk about the creative industries. Sometimes um, it's important, you know, people talk a lot about this kind of ugly word that is disruption, but sometimes disruption is useful. And one of the projects that I wanted to um, work on for R&D was kind of a butad. I don't know if it's going to happen, but I was thinking of a bring your artist to work day. You know how there's a bring your daughter to work day? So I was thinking that we could have a brain trust of artists that have different specificity, and then we could have corporation CEOs come to us and say, I need an artist for my next board meeting because I need you know, to talk about something in particular. So that was my it's a crazy idea. But that we would do a bring your artist to work day for corporations. <laughs> so this is just a simple example. Uh, yes. I think that without any romanticism, artists and designers and architects think in their own ways and yes. they're ways that are very interesting and sometimes could be super useful in policy making or corporate settings. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I, I love that you actually brought up this idea of disruption because I actually noticed a, um, an interview or a keynote that Glenn Lowry gave a couple uh -huh. of days ago at the Arts, Arts and Museum Summit in Hong Kong, mm -hmm. and he called for museums to be subversive and said that MoMA is building in its own disruption, mm -hmm. and that very much sounds like what you're, what you're talking Absolutely. about here. So how is MoMA building in disruption? Is it things like your position? Definitely. It's things yeah. like my position. It's a new curator that sometimes think in completely different ways. It's old curators that have always thought in different ways. You know, So it's the mixture and sometimes the dissonance of opinions that I think is very important. If you look at the programs at MoMA, you know, even at this time you have a classical exhibition like Magritte and then you have Isaac Enskin that is the opposite. It's almost like a strident, really provocative contemporary artist. And, uh, um, and, and so it's, uh, it's about having all these different tensions. Then you have Dante Ferretti, which different offerings that all come together in this mission of the communication of the social value of modern art. That really is important to us. And there is, we have a lot of discussions also. We have a lot of opportunities for discussions within the museum. R&D has these salons that happen every other month that are about um, bringing, you know, choosing topics that um, are very relevant to society at large, but in which the museum has some expertise yes. and try to create this bridge. So we've had uh, five last year, and, and now we're doing more. But the topics range from uh, culture and metrics, so how to find, find metrics to justify the importance of culture in society, to the last one was about taboos, right? So 
after we have the salons, I, I get together with uh, some of the chief curators and the senior management, and we talk about it. I mean, these salons are for us, you know, to huh. really think about. And the last one about taboos was exceptional because um, there was uh, Tom Finkelpearl, who's the director of the Queen's Museum, and he's just brilliant, and he did not hold back. So these opportunities for real discussion are great. And I think that's what Len was also thinking about. Not the salons per se, but opportunities for discussion. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think one of the things that I've been noticing in the sector um, lately is this real hunger for reflection and discussion and, and not just sort of going about work as daily business, but working out, well, how does this sit and how do we get the daily business done, but also think about the big picture and what we should be addressing Absolutely. as a sector. Mm-hmm. So it seems that what you're trying to do then is create um, opportunities for those sorts of discussions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what other sorts of projects are you tackling then? So you've got the salons, you want the Bring an Artist to Work Day. What other things in, in an R&D department in a museum do you tackle? Well, um, right now we're doing a lot of R and not enough D because it's only me and another person, so I have to see what happens in the future. But uh, I've had uh, dreams of software platforms that we then rolled out. So there's many different projects that are possible. Right now, and, and also a lot of research on the online world for exhibition. You know, the fact that the metaphors we're using right now are not really working. You can't transpose online physical exhibition. You have to find new means. And so, for instance, right now, with my A&D, Architecture and Design Curatorial hat, I am also doing an R&D project, which is this curatorial experiment online that's called Design and Violence. Yes. So it's the attempt to take topic, you know, to explore an important topic in the world using artifacts that can be in the museum, right? In this case, design objects that have an ambiguous relationship with violence. This is an R&D project because it's about dialogue and conversation, right? They've also become kind of keywords that you hear repeated all the time, so let's move a few steps back. What does it mean, you know? So... Um, the prompt for this whole exhibition, this whole curatorial experiment, was a book published last year by Steven Pinker, the Harvard scientist, that was called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Yep. And it argues that our society is becoming less violent. He takes historical data, he proves it, it's impeccable, and I respect him tremendously. But of course, I was like cringing, saying, is it really possible? Mm. Uh, maybe the idea of violence has changed, and the metrics used here referred to the old idea of violence. And so. I'm no scientist, and he had worked on this for years, so I, would not, I was not about to confute anything. But what I did is I decided to explore it using my tools, you know, which is design objects. So together with Jamer Hunt, who's my co-curator uh, from Parsons, and uh, Kate Carmody, who's a curatorial assistant that I work with, we made this whole checklist of objects that, as I mentioned, have an ambiguous relationship with violence. For instance, there are these green bullets that are developed by the U.S. Army that are lead-free, so they're safe for the environment, but they'll still kill you. <laughs> I know, I just love it. And uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of, of these objects. Then we're asking people to have an expertise in violence because they wrote about it, because they experienced it. Steven Pinker is one of them. To comment on these objects. Yeah, I've actually because I've been following. Oh, that, thank you. Yeah, thank I've been following you. that project, and what I'm interested in is that you are sort of drawing some speakers that you wouldn't necessarily always associate with museum no, conversations know, into the dialogue. So, is that then one of the sort of key things for you, merging? Absolutely. Yeah, and sort Absolutely. of the museum dialogue and other voices. 
absolutely other voices and voices that are relevant to society. I'm very proud amongst the speakers, amongst <laughs> speakers, you know, they almost speak, amongst the writers, the essay writers. We have Anne-Marie Slaughter, yes. who I love. I mean, she's the greatest journalist and State Department expert. And then we have William Gibson. So we reach different audiences by means of people. We have Steven Pinker, Ariana Huffington is going to come up in the, one of the next uh, publications. So we have design experts, Jeff Manel, and but then we have journalists like John Hockenberry, so they bring with them their own audiences and therefore open up um, our exercise. And also it shows, once again, what I was telling you with R&D, uh, the relevance of museums in society. So we're not only there to show you paintings on the wall, important as they are, we're also here to help you think of your life and the circumstances mm. around you in a more, in a deeper, more intense and more humane way. So this is quite interesting to me because I think these sorts of projects, they obviously are a very different approach to working mm-hmm. because, I mean, you then would be having to, I suppose, think about how other people respond to the blog and, and things like that in different ways. Has this changed your personal practice, getting involved with these sorts of projects? Mm. Yes and no. Um, my practice has always been about talking to as many people as possible. Mm. So, uh, for instance, I began the um, MoMA website in 1995. I wanted to have a website and uh, for my first exhibition, and people didn't really know what a website was. So I learned HTML, and I coded the website, which is still there. You can still find it on the MoMA. It's horrible. Horrible. You should go and see it, but it's Brilliant. like it's worth a <laughs> So I wanted to reach more people. So it's always been that way. What changed me is something that happened in 2008 when I was doing the exhibition Design in the Elastic Mind. That's when I realized, you know, I was very nervous because um, normally when you do an exhibition in a museum like MoMA, you have a very precise idea, you're certain about it, that's the way it is, and you communicate it to the world. And instead, it was an intuition of a possible future that I could not prove, and I felt insecure about it, but when the exhibition opened, I realized that that kind of vulnerability is an asset for some exhibition and for some curators because it draws people in. When you tell people, I'm almost at the end, I've done a lot of work on this, but you know what, I'm not completely sure, what do you think? Oh my God, all of a sudden you get the conversation going. So. Um, that's what I learned. Mm. If you say, it's a curatorial experiment, let's try together to understand what the contemporary manifestations of violence in society are. And people do it, you know? People are like, well, there's nothing like asking for help. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting approach. We talk a lot in, I suppose, the tech end of the sector about openness and iteration and the capacity mm. to experiment. But I think there's sometimes felt to be a pushback against that within certain institutions because of the sort of the risk elements or the associated risks. But when you when you put it like that, it doesn't seem to be particularly yeah, yeah. risky. I mean, it depends. Maybe it's not done in the right way. I don't know. Maybe sometimes it's forced, right? And that is always jarring. But I don't see. I see risks in not doing it, right? Yeah, and I mean, again, going back to this idea of disruption. I think when we talk about sort of museums in this context, there's the sense of, well, is, the, is it a risk that we should be um, doing experimental practice and taking on things like research and development? But 
for you, you almost would say the other way. Well, yeah, if you don't do this, how should people remain interested in what you do? I mean, if you're getting your money from the government and nothing is ever going to happen to you, you have the luxury of being lazy if you wish, but it's going to be a missed opportunity. If you instead have to be self-sustaining in terms of financial terms, then you really cannot afford to not move. And I'm thinking sometimes I try to, to position myself as a museum goer instead of a museum, um, you know, museum person from the inside. And I try to think, what would make me get out of bed? You know, it's like, maybe I am a little jaded, but not necessarily. And it's, it's that attempt to go further. It's that you feel the person behind an exhibition. You know what I'm saying? It's not something that pops up from the sky. I like that humanity. And I mean, obviously you've worked in both, um, you work in physical spaces, but obviously having created the website and now doing this digital project as well, you work across both spaces. Do you think that informs the way you approach the sorts of problems that you tackle? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've always felt very comfortable mm-hmm. in the digital space. Um, took me a while, perhaps, to use, I mean, I've always refused to use Facebook, and instead I have embraced Twitter. I feel more comfortable because Twitter has much more discipline, and you need to, and you really, the person comes through, you know, you, there's no way to be hidden. Huh. Um, and, you know, so I like to try new things. I am not an early adopter at all. I am still using a BlackBerry, and I'm really happy with it, and I fret the moment where I'll have to give it up. Um, so it's not about early adoption, it's about finding the comfort zone, and I think that's a very design attitude. You know, designers are also concerned with people, people's comfort with technology and with innovation. They're the ones that make disruptions into life. So I think I have a very strong design attitude also when it comes to technology and to the digital world. And I think that's why I can communicate it quite easily to the public. Right, so this is very much sort of your response to the world that you're then bringing through yeah. into the museum. Yeah. yeah, okay. I might just very quickly have a look and see about any of the questions that I had that we haven't touched on. <laughs> um, I think one of the things you mentioned a little while ago, and you mentioned this idea of museums being the R&D departments of society. And I think this is a really lovely idea. Thank you. But I'm sort of curious as to why it seems to be happening now. And, I mean, museums have always been a place for research, mm-hmm. yes. Why is the research now taking this sort of particular focus of being, you know, usually around technology and those sorts of things? Is it just what you were saying of trying to come up with a need to justify our existence? No, I think that museums, some museums, not all, are really concerned with the real world and they have been in the past, you know, we tend to think that our time is unique, but in truth, you know, there have been amazing examples in the 60s and 70s of museums being highly political mm-hmm. and uh, and really provocative. I think that we, as contemporary curators, look at the world around us and try to address important issues. So technology is not only an issue, it's also a very simple means of communication. So right. hey, we need to deal with it. Um, but I think that the world around us has 
has become very rich with inflammatory issues. I mean, you can see it just like look around you uh, from the economic, the financial crisis to disparities between different parts of the world or within societies, tensions and geopolitical tensions. There's so much to address. I like what some museums and cultural institutions are doing overtly, like Creative Time. You're yeah. probably familiar with them. I like very much Creative Time reports where you have artists that talk about political issues from different parts of the world. It's a very interesting way to integrate art within the real world, and then they have their summit every year. So, see, it's um, artists are part of society, yes. and in the past, they used to be um, really, how can I say, the spokespeople of society. They were the ones about, uh, they were the ones to say that the emperor was naked, you know, that yes. was their role. And uh, they have come back to do that, and designers too. So designers have become much more critical and uh, have assumed a role that they did not have in the past. In the, in the past, there was this, I hate it, problem-solving cliche about design. Sometimes now, instead, it's beautiful because it's problem-making or question-asking, which is a role that artists used to have traditionally in the past and that in some cases have lost a little bit. Not all of them, but... So do you think, then, that designers actually have a particular power at this moment that maybe they didn't have? I don't know if it's a matter of power. Who has power, frankly? People that have power are politicians and, and economists. You know, let's be frank. I don't think that artists and designers have enough power yet or the power that they should have. Right. Um, I think that designers are in a really interesting position because design has become so encompassing and it touches upon so many different parts of life and also the way designers act has become a really good paradigm for how um, life is today, interdisciplinary, team-based, share economies, a very design concept. So I think that because of their entrepreneurial streak, because of their constructive nature, because of how they are used to prototyping and testing new possibilities, design are really well positioned to be, I like to say, the, the, the critical thinkers, the philosophers of today's world. Um, but power, far from it, because they are very far from getting recognition and getting acknowledged for this kind of potential. So is that then something that you try and bring? Yeah, I think that uh, a better integration of designers, I'm not talking about design or design thinking, I'm not talking about design thinking, I'm talking about designers. Um, a better use of designers in policy-making situations would be beneficial. Like I, I, I'm always thinking that uh, the White House could use a design task force, but they still consider design as embellishment and something that is instead about the decorative arts. So trying to make people realize that design is a very necessary enzyme for science and technology to become life is something that will take a while. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Now, I think we're almost at the end of our allotted time. Yeah. Can I find out, if people are interested in following up with you on these sorts of issues or on these discussions, where can they find you online and where, where can they find your work? Well, um, I tweet um, under the handle Curious Octopus, but I don't really tweet that much about my work there. I think that the best way to go about it is a Google search every now and then, in the sense that, of course, I'm on the MoMA site, and uh, designandviolence.moma.org is, um, is the address for the Design and Violence Project. 
I'm looking into having some sort of life online for the R&D department. Right now, there's only an internal Google site where I have a lot of research, but I'm exploring with Aline Bezende, who's the research um, assistant in R&D. I'm exploring how to put it online and put the videos of the salon online. So I'm a little bit all over the place as usual. <laughs> Brilliant. I think that sounds fantastic. Well, Paula, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank this you, Sue. so interesting. You're a great geek. Okay, Sue, some some really great stuff there. You you guys uh, had a, had a lot to talk about, and it was so awesome that that you could really uh, take advantage of of that chance meeting between you two. Yeah, absolutely. It was super nice to be able to sort of sit and have actually quite an intimate discussion and then be able to bring it out to the world and, and hear the results of it and have them recorded. It was really fantastic. Yeah, I think, um, you know, as we move forward, we'll, we'll certainly, um, you know, next month we'll be getting back to our kind of regular format. But down the road, I I, I think, um, you know, these kind of opportunistic, um, you know, vox pop type um informal chance meeting discussions could could become an element of the show moving forward um what do you think yeah i i think that's a really great idea it means i'll probably have to start carrying a microphone with me at all times but i'm okay with that i you know i'll just get a bigger handbag and constantly yeah. be shoving microphones in people fa- people's faces <laughs> we'll make it work so uh so yeah next month we'll be back to our regular format with some some exciting and interesting uh guests but until then uh you can follow museo punks on twitter at museo punks or uh, if you're interested in any of the, the, the wealth of information that Suze and, and Paula discussed uh, during their talk, um, you can access um, all, that in, all the show, show notes and links at museopunks.org slash one two. This is episode 12. Um, so, yeah, Suze, where can, uh, where can listeners uh, connect with you uh, on the internets? find me on the internet um on twitter i am at shines like and my blog is museumgeek.wordpress.com um it's a tiny bit dormant at the moment because i am in the final final stages of writing my draft for my phd and i'm focusing very much on that writing rather than blog writing but i'm looking forward to having that out of the way and that way i can get into thinking about all of the stuff uh well writing blog posts on all of the things that i've been thinking about really over the last couple of months so uh what about you jeff where can people find you on the internet uh you can find me on twitter at static made or at staticmade.com. uh and i like you Suze, i'm looking forward to getting back into writing i writing there i think uh i've slowly but surely started to ramp up some ideas and um I may take the lead of, of Mr. Frank Chimero, who I referenced earlier about making that uh, a little cluttered, cozy cottage of the internet uh, for myself. I so. think that sounds like a pretty beautiful metaphor of what would be a very nice place to poke around in, in someone's cluttered, cozy cottage <laughs> of the internet. That sounds pretty yeah. great, Jeff. There you go. So, uh, and with that, I think we can, uh, we can uh, call it a wrap on this episode. Um, Suze, uh, have a great uh, month, and I look forward to, to chatting with you soon. <laughs>